Hello, NoCode Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my NoCode story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff, all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. Authentication for Web3. That's the topic we're discussing today with Sean Lee, founder and CEO of Magic. I was immediately taken by Sean's humility and the way he outlined his journey all the way from his early days playing jazz to his three-person startup getting acquired by Docker, and finally, how he came up with the idea for Magic. We talk specifically about the differences in identity going from Web 2 to Web 3 and how no-code intersects with the decentralized web. I think you're going to really enjoy this deeply personal and impactful conversation with Sean. Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Sean. This is my no-code story. You ready to go, Sean? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Welcome to the show. It's uh, it's a distinct pleasure to speak with you, mainly because I think the topics that we're going to cover are going to be really unique today. And uh, especially for my audience and for myself, I think Web3 and the decentralized web are all areas that we really want to start getting into. But speaking from personal experience, I've been holding off on it for a while. I've been seeing the ecosystem develop, but I haven't really you know jumped in with both feet yet. So I'm eager to learn more about how you're thinking about identity as, as sort of a central part of the decentralized web. And specifically with your company, Magic, I'm really interested in how you're enabling this for no-code tech. So really excited to dig into it. I think we have a ton to cover, but welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here. Thank you. It's great, really great to be here as well. Why don't we start by talking about your backdrop, which is not a Zoom backdrop. It's um, you know actual <laughs> physical objects, yeah. which you see fewer and fewer of those backdrops. But I see a ton of musical instruments there. Like I see a, a full-size uh, a piano. I think, is that like a, a digital uh, piano? Uh, like yeah, an actual so piano, right? With, yeah, and then I, I see uh, like an acoustic guitar. I see some pipes. So tell us the story from a musical angle. Like uh, how did you get interested? What what instruments do you play and, and um, what do you enjoy playing? Yeah, so yeah, this is a real background. <laughs> so when I was in you know middle school, I got really involved in music. So actually I'm a Canadian. So when I was in high school, I actually played for the district jazz band. Right. But my, my, my saxophone uh, was my main instrument. I really love improvising. And, uh, you know, I have a auto saxophone and a sort of electric saxophone, which is pretty right. cool. You can make it sound like a flute too. <laughs> and then in college, I learned the, the, the guitar because the saxophone was too loud for my roommates. So, <laughs> and when I get bored, I just pluck on the strings a bit, you know, I, and then for COVID, I actually wanted to really learn the piano. So, so I bought it you know, some digital keys, you know, make some music. And then sometimes, you know, after work to wind down, I just, you know, try to improvise. I learn like different things and music theory. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been fun and it's been a great way to like de-stress over, over COVID. Yeah. Other, other people that I know would have kicked their friends out of the room and continued playing the saxophone, but you picked up a new instrument, which uh, I really admire the, the accommodating nature, but also uh, I admire the fact that you were able to pick up so many, you know, musical instruments and, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about transitions and how 
learning one uh, instrument helped you with with the others was it kind of a natural progression for you yeah, to me you know i almost uh, chose my career path in music <laughs> and right. engineering was actually my my last choice um and yeah i i guess for me i just i just really like you know ma making music and improvising sort of go with the flow in terms of music so you know jazz jazz was my was my thing and i think you know, music is, is super transferable between instruments. And I, I think each instrument, you know, like keys, like woodwind, like strings, they all kind of express different different feelings. And and sometimes when you play, you, you, you kind of like channel those energy and feelings. So so I think, yeah, like it's very, yeah, it, it was it was it was more natural for me to pick uh, more instruments. I tried the trumpet as well. And and yeah, I think for me, it's, I'm just really, really interested in like how each instrument work and how like playing that makes me feel. So I think that, you know, passion and interest actually makes it easier for me to, to pick up instruments. Awesome. And, and the fact that you were uh, talking about transferable skills going from one instrument to the other, it immediately made me think of how entrepreneurs in the ecosystem are probably focused on individual tools and how to get better at each individual tool. But some of the skill set that they have is actually transferable regardless of the tools that they use to build their, their application. And it's, it's really nice to take away things from other parts of your life and, and kind of layer it and, and layer that construct on, on, you know, entrepreneurship and, and the journey. Tell us about your entrepreneurial journey. So you said yeah. you grew up in Canada. When did you move stateside and what has your story been like? Yeah, so um, I'm Canadian. I moved a lot in different cities in Canada from uh, Toronto to Vancouver and then back to Waterloo for my uh, undergrad. So I, so I studied software engineering and, uh, you know, I, I had to <laughs> pick all that up because <laughs> I, speaking of like transferable skills, actually when I was, much younger, I did use some like no code tools to okay, which one um, to sort of create StarCraft maps, like Warcraft maps. Right. That's how I kind of learned the logic needed for me to learn programming too. So, so I got exposed to that at a pretty young, like early age, with like the scripts and like if then you know that through through the map editors. So, and then eventually I, I taught myself more more programming to you know I think. Programming to me mean, meant more like having the tools to get things done, right? Like get something out there in the world, have people try it out. So that's always been really, really exciting. And I always liked sort of making tools like for, um, for my classmates too, like things that make assignments easier, like things that like calculate certain things. And so when I graduated, I, I really wanted to do like, to, to build a product like for developers. So, and at that time, Docker, uh, which is like the, the virtual containers software. Mm -hmm. And that was like at its infancy where it was uh, predominantly used by like Linux uh, developers. Right. And for me, I'm like, that's, that's such an awesome technology when I first saw it. And I, I really wanted to make it accessible for like, well, mainstream developers, like on Mac, on Windows. So, so I built my first startup, um, Kitematic, around that, which is the UI that uh, made Docker really accessible. And so, you know, there, there were three of us from Waterloo and we were uh, acquired by Docker. 
sort of like two years in, in the game. And what's you know, the timeframe for this? When did this happen? So this was end of 2015. It's, it's when, it's when I think that that finalized and yeah, that was, that was a really exciting journey. We joined Docker. We, we, we were like more helping out with the developer experience side, making things accessible and simple. You know, we, we worked a lot with the CTO there. We actually launched Docker desktop, which is the, the menu bar, the item right yeah. where the Docker whale is there. It's really cool. Um, because before that, Docker actually had to run with VirtualBox, right? Which is like really, really clunky, like user experience. But, you know, we, we work with some of the best kernel hackers in the world to like make sure that like Docker feels like it's running natively on the, on the desktop. And by the time I, I left, you know, that's probably looking at like a couple million like active developers on it. So, so I was, I was always really interested and that kind of set me on the course with like infrastructure and like making it more accessible for people. And I think it's, it, it, it's kind of like, I make this analogy. It's like, you know, artists needs the tools. And, and I think engineers or, or coders, the programmers are, are artists and they shouldn't be worrying about like how the brush is made, <laughs> like making their own brush and, and papers. Right. So the thing for me, is always about like making these tools and making it um, accessible and I think for me, you know, after my, my time at Docker, I was, I was sort of looking for that next sort of more revolutionizing piece of infrastructure that is like, you know, more multifaceted, right? So, and I, I realized that, you know, blockchain was, you know, a fundamental change in, in this kind of infrastructure, right? It, it changes how we view money. It changes how we align incentives across different parties. It changes... Um, how we have digital ownership, right? And, and I think it is sort of the cornerstone for a future where like users of the internet are, you know, self-sovereign, right? And in control of their own identity. So yeah, that got, that got me um, really excited because, you know, the current way identity works is, is just not very scalable, right? It's too centralized. It has a lot of risks for like central points of failure. Right. And for example, like user data and, you know, credentials like passwords are just being reused and stored across hundreds of online services. Right. And these are like silos that have varied level of security. Like some companies have really good security. Some companies have like basically no security. Right. And if that company gets hacked, then like that would make compromising others uh, much easier. So I think what really sort of imbued me with this energy is to like we is that we really need to work on like refactoring the user identity layer of the internet and, and sort of transition us into something that is more sustainable. So yeah, that's how uh, I, I sort of landed on, on magic and, and 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 sort of iteration that that we're in right now. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. Uh, first of all, congratulations on on the first sale and. I think this is one of the keystone problems that needs solving. Just this week, Robinhood had a hack, right? Where, you know, several email IDs, usernames, passwords. I think for some users, demographic information and personal information was also leaked. So it just shows the central point of failure, like you were saying, and the fact that there are so many points of failure now with all the services that we're using. So. I think companies have started to take a view on this with, you know, multi-factor, two-factor authentication. So let's kind of define the authentication space right now. 
and tell us what how you see the authentication space because i know there are companies like we had a group product manager at Okta that is really looking to take over identity from an enterprise standpoint. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, you know, the various no code tools that they use to ensure that when an employee accesses company systems, it's the actual user and two factor and multi-factor are a core part of it. We've mm-hmm. even started to see this, you know, become a default step in end user applications like consumer apps, like Gmail mm-hmm. and stuff as well. Right. So is that not enough uh, for us to have two factor? And how do you define the authentication space in Web2 and what's broken right now? Yeah, I, I think I think it's like I can, I can put it in like different frames, right? So so there's and if you look at companies, like identity is not a new thing, right? So you started with you know, the old guards, right? Like, like Microsoft, like, you know, maybe Oracle, right? And then, and then that sort of evolved into sort of the new contenders, right? Like Okta, like Auth0. And, and I think Magic is sort of like the newer generation of authentication, right? That's based on like a sort of more decentralized ethos, right? Because, you know, I'm sure the, um, the companies prior to that would have taken the step, right? If the technology was mature enough and readily available, but now it's a good timing to sort of capture this and sort of the birth of Web3 and decentralized application, it's it's a really, really strong signal for like this new wave of, of identity that's coming. And so 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 with that context, it's, it's, it's a lot, because authentication is not straightforward, right? There's a lot of use cases. It spans a, a super large surface area. So, and I would say in the current market, it's generally divided into customer identity and, and workforce identity. So a lot of these um, larger enterprises, companies that's a bit more mature, that they, they focus a lot on the workforce identity side of things, which is you know, focuses on managing data and access rights for like, you know, companies own employees, right? Generally sort of maintaining uh, a least privileged security model. So, you know, potentially multi-factor is really good for this case, right? It's really, really secure, but there's a, there's a, there's a bit more friction in, in terms of like getting the user started, but it's okay because that's like internal employees, right? So I imagine if you, get like a very large fortune 500 company and all of them starts using your like workforce identity solution then you know that's that's great revenue right for 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 companies like that and (laughs) there's also another sort of segment which is customer identity right And, and this generally is allowing like unknown users to sign up or log in most likely without any friction at all right focusing a lot on like the conversions so so this is the area that like magic is, is focused on is, is customer identity and especially on customers who have a very, very large um, user base with their own network effects and, and growth of their own. Right. So and we've we've also seen sort of two trends happening. So like for, for work workforce identity sort of sort of more like in, incumbent like authentication solutions. You know, they, they tend to offer both passwords and passwordless options. You know, they're just starting to look at passwordless options. But if you look at like the space as is now, everybody's talking about like passwordless and the dangers of passwords. So, so you know, also for Magic, we, we focus a lot on like the passwordless aspect of it. You know, email-based Magic links, SMS, MFA, and the sort of 
even more like modern device-based logins, like using WebAuthn, like basically like YubiKeys, like hardware-based. So I think we're moving towards a world where, you know, end users and developers are becoming like more aware of security and like risk and the uh, dangers of passwords and eventually shifting towards a future where, where it's passwordless, right? So it, 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 imagine like typing your password in on like uh, Apple TV, right? In order to log in versus like, right. hey, you get a push notification on your phone, right? And you can just click on that to log in. Uh, it would be like really, really convenient uh, for end users in terms of user experience, but it's also like really good for security because there's no, there's no passwords involved. So, so, so I think we're moving to our future where it's both user-friendly and also like really, really secure. And, you know, the challenge is definitely, it's like, you know, how, how do you, it's, it's difficult making authentication solution, make sure that scales and especially if we're looking at like millions, hundreds of millions of, of users. Right. Right. So, so that's, so that, that would be really, really difficult, you know, ensuring the product is good. Like people can actually convert and go through the process that takes a lot of iterations. That's and, and, and sort of, sort of product thinking. So there's a lot of challenges around like security, um, scalability, like usability. And so, you know, for magic, we make that harder for ourselves too, um, with, Hey, we have to support web three as well and be the most future proof identity solution, right? Because web three is inevitable, right? And, you know, if we want to be sort of the passport of the internet and be the most future proof authentication solution, we have to have that in the picture. So, so that makes things extra difficult <laughs> for us. Tell me a bit more about that, because the way you were describing the Apple TV example, that is something that a company like Apple, for example, in this case, could choose to enable, right? They could choose mm -hmm. to have a notification pop up on your iPhone and then let you log in with you know, Face ID or something like mm -hmm. that and not have to type your password on your Apple TV. What is it different that you're trying to achieve in the Web3 space? And let's maybe start by defining mm -hmm. what Web3 actually is. What are some mm -hmm. decentralized use cases that uh, you're helping to solve from an authentication mm -hmm. standpoint? And what are some of the challenges that you come up with looking at specifically at decentralized apps and authentication in, in that context? Yeah. So I would say Web3 is any application that interacts with the blockchain, right? I think that's like probably not the like most accurate way, but it's like the most accessible way to talk, to, to stop, talk about it. And for example, you may be hearing a lot about like NFTs, right? Like digital collectibles. You know, that's one, you know, I would say really, really popular use case uh, these days. So I was just at NFT in, uh, at New York City with, with the conference and yep. I was sitting in and like Quentin Tarantino just came on stage <laughs> and he's like, hey, like we're like dropping some NFTs, which is like the, the sort of original manuscript for Pulp Fiction. Right? And that's like super cool. Right. And we see like actual legitimate like museum curators actually talking about like you know, NFTs as, as a new art form, right? And, and there's like wow. generative art based on that. So I think culture is moving that direction and which also sort of brings everything like with it, right? Which is, which is awesome. And the more like sort of common things you hear is like, you know, trading or like payment using cryptocurrency, 
And also, you know, other use cases like ensuring like data authenticity or like true digital ownerships on the internet. You know, you may hear a lot about metaverse, right? And, <laughs> but, you know, like, for example, if the entire metaverse is under Facebook, right, then do you really like own any of those items in the digital world, right? But with Web3, with what, you know, sort of decentralized identity can enable, right? It's like, it's not just about one company being in the metaverse. It's about like everybody can participate in the metaverse. Like you can launch your own like little meta store front, right? Using maybe no code, local tools, right? Like, right. like that, it should be like buzzy and like messy like that. But you know, like how does, then, then how do you ensure like items are transferable between these like companies and startup silos? It's actually like blockchain is actually a really good mechanism to, to, to sort of in, ensure the integrity of data sort of across these silos, which I think is, is it's a really, really exciting application that's going to be useful in the, in the metaverse. And I think, I think what gets me even more excited about Web3 is, it, it, is, is, is that this is something that's not possible before, right? Like, for example, we were finally able to ensure, we're finally able to program trust into software now. Right. Because before you kind of have to take trust for granted with like companies like reputation and all that. And, you know, it's, it's hard to ensure like a, a company that, that would continue to like persist that right as, as they continue to grow. But with blockchain, with the ability to program trust into software, you can pretty much you, you pretty much have a toggle for like or, or sort of a scale for, for decentralization and more transparency. Right. The more decentralized you are, the more transparent you are. Maybe, maybe the interaction with the blockchain is a bit slower, right? But if you want it to be faster, then it's like, then, you know, there's, there's some more centralization around it, but still the risk of losing trust and, and sort of risk in terms of security, is, it's also a lever there, right? Which, which something like this is, was, was never possible before. That's such an interesting way of describing the blockchain as a way to program trust into software. What are some of the challenges from an authentication standpoint? So if I'm a user, and let's kind mm -hmm. of take a general example, right? There are several decentralized um, applications that I'm looking to use. What are some of the challenges from an authentication standpoint? Like I know that I cannot really use a username, password type combination. Mm -hmm to log in what do i use to log in and what's broken in in a decentralized authentication setup yeah so you may hear the term wallet a lot in yeah. like web3 so a wallet is essentially a, a public private key pair right like for example that it, it, it's kind of like the, the command line like like rsa like keys that, that you add so to, to for you to add access like maybe github from your terminal yep. It, it's, it's a concept that existed for, for a long time, but you know, crypto sort of takes that to the next level using like elliptic curve cryptography. So it's, it's both a public and a private key, right? So it's a key pair, right? At, at the essence and any interaction with the blockchain needs to go through that public private key pair, right? So the public key, it's almost sort of like your uh, public, uh, your, your username, right? In, in right. a way. Okay. Right? And, and your private key is kind of like the password, right? So whoever holds the private key, whoever controls the private key can sort of, you know, interact with the blockchain. So in this case, the end users um, actually are in control of their private key instead of like it being hosted like by a, by a company. 
So the status quo sort of when crypto was like a bit less mainstream was through a browser extension, a Chrome browser extension called MetaMask, which is, which is almost like a, it's, it's the Chrome extension that helps user manage their keys mm-hmm. and, uh, and letting, and be sort of a gateway into sort of letting users access decentralized apps, like buy NFTs, uh, put some crypto in the wallet. Right. And, and, you know, there's also decentralized finance, which was very popular uh, as well. So I think the challenge with that is, you know, although this is a really good form factor for sort of pre-existing ecosystem, like, like users who already are sort of familiar with the, the fundamentals of blockchain, right. But how do we bring the next like hundred million like users in, right? It's, it's not, it's definitely not an ideal experience to have them go through like the Chrome store, which by the way, only limits to the Chrome store, right. To, to, you know, go through the entire signup process, teaching users about like fundamentals of blockchain so they can secure their keys and not lose it. Right. A lot of people lose their keys and you hear these horror stories of like, users like losing like millions of dollars of crypto because they don't know where to put that yep. recovery key. So, so to me, I think there needs to be more optionality on top of this more like um, strict, right. Uh, sort of view of what decentralized application and how users should interact with it. So what we do at magic is, is that we make it more accessible for, end users, right, to interact with these blockchain applications through like very familiar authentication methods, like like email links, SMS, social login, right? So, so once a user authenticates with those login methods, we actually generate a sort of public-private key pair for the end users. And that's, you know, encrypted and then sort of like stored on the client side with, with the end users. And so, so users don't even have to know that like they're dealing with a wallet, they're dealing with the blockchain. To them, they're just interacting with a regular like web 2.0 application. So I think, you know, this is how we're going to bring like the next like, you know, 100 million, if not like billions of users into web three. And, you know, on, on top of that, we also make it really easy for developers to sort of add this into their application. And I think, you know, no code and, and Web3 has a really fun intersection there too. It's it's like, we have to make it easier for developers too, so that they sort of adopt magic and, and sort of provide this as a functionality to their end users. And, you know, whether the user use the blockchain key pairs or not, that's a fundamental part of our authentication stack, right? So, so and um, we almost see it as like planting uh, trees, like for a forest. Right, every user to public-private key pairs and this form of decentralized identity, right, it, it is sort of painting a greener like future, right, in terms of like the identity layer of the internet. So, and then these keys are, are super portable too. Like a user can choose to just take the key out, like, and, and put it into MetaMask too, right? They can they can like print it on a piece of paper, right, and that's their identity. So. So there, there's, it's more expensive and there's more possibility on how, you know, users can now be in more control of their, of their identity. Yeah. So the, the way you're describing it, I mean, I had a very similar, I won't call it a challenge, but actually just a conundrum maybe of how do I actually, <clears throat> excuse me, how do I actually make sure that 
my my recovery key is stored someplace safe without relying again on that single point of failure, like an online web two application to store it, or maybe a password service, etc. And I don't know the answer to that quite quite honestly. And I don't know what the obviously the more analog you go, the more secure it is, but also you know, do you really trust yourself to, you know, be able to maintain all of that and, and what happens in the eventuality of like an emergency or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really like the fact that, you know, you're starting to blend the two in a certain way, mm -hmm. blend the web two approach that is more accessible with the decentralized web approach where the keys and um, and and all of the data is really encrypted and stored on the end user client. That's something that I did not appreciate uh, early on when when I was kind of researching magic. So I think that's that's a great sort of start to making sure security is at the core. What so can an end user just go to magic and start using it for their own personal wallets, or does it need to be enabled by a company whose services an end user is using? Yeah, so right now it's through a company. You know, we don't like Magic doesn't have doesn't like interact directly with the end users. It's it's kind of like Stripe, right? Where you sort of use Stripe and you see the Stripe like powered yep. by Stripe tag, <clears throat> but it's uh but end users don't have to know about Stripe, right? So so it's like in we're we're, we're sort of on a similar boat here, right? With with like our authentication, it's like secured by Magic, right? But like the brand can be, you know, sort of customized to meet like the company's own brand. So just like, you know, it's less confusion and a better user experience too, right? For, for the end users. Yeah. But, you know, like, for example, let's say if we were to sort of release a mobile app, then, you know, we would have sort of that relationship with the end users, right? But, but right now, you know, Magic is very much interested in like, you know, serving developers and sort of distributing through, through developers, right? Because, I would say that's the most efficient way to like reach end users, right? It's like the offers now support that login flow, then the end users would be using that automatically. So, and, and I would kind of almost extend that even to like entrepreneurs in general, because you have a lot of non-developer entrepreneurs that are using no-code tech to, to build, you know, essentially at this point, I think still web two applications, but they could start layering in some authentication if they were to interact with a, a MetaMask or, or leverage NFTs in some way or, or some kind of a crypto uh, currency in some way to support their, their app ecosystem. For sure. And, and like, I think with no code, it's all about like what you can do with sort of a more, with a higher level abstraction, right? On the tooling, right? And, and I think no code shouldn't be like less powerful or have less features than like, if you were just to program it yourself, in fact, it should have more functionalities and more extensibility, you know? And, and I think if this, then that, or like Zapier, these are some like really fun tools, right? For, for like the no-code stack. And, you know, I would say Magic brings like the authentication and uh, Web3 Lego piece, right? Into the equation. So now no-code um, no customers can have like more in their tool set to, to build like more powerful applications. Yeah. So help me understand something about uh, the decentralized web. So in a centralized web, entrepreneurship and having access to end user data and identity were sort of the keys that enabled you to be successful and create value in an ecosystem and really become large, like, you know, the Amazons, the Googles of the world and the Facebooks mm -hmm. of the world. 
how does that translate into the so two part question how does that translate into the decentralized web like where is the value created and if i'm an entrepreneur looking to create something in the decentralized web what is it that will enable me to grow to become like a like the next google or or whatever in in the decentralized context so that's part number one mm -hmm. and then the second part is what does that decentralized internet look like a decade from now like am i going to be walking like a zombie in zuckerberg's version of the metaverse <laughs> and where you know everything's uh, a part of my meta identity or what what does that look like from your lens yeah so you know hard to exactly predict the future right uh, with, with things like this but one thing i know is that technology sort of like i'm convinced that in the future the internet is going to be more user-centered rather than like company-centered so so users will have you know more more freedom and, and tools and, and possibilities that they they possess that lets them interact with the internet more and i think what would be what what's really interesting is like I, I would say that like the next google and facebook it's it's not gonna be it, it's it's not gonna be born like in a similar way as in, as in web two right like it, it's going to be based on maybe like new business models, right? That's that um, new like business model innovations, right? And, and and sort of capturing new possibilities created by the blockchain, which I think essentially is, you know, it, it gives it gives companies the tool set to really align incentives, right? Like like for example, Bitcoin is like an incentive alignment. The the genius is in sort of the incentive alignment, right? Like it's like combining the, the money side with like the miners, like the transactions, right? It's, it's like a, a sort of concepts that, that wouldn't like people wouldn't like put together like mm -hmm. before the, the, the creation of it. So, you know, I, I was always thinking this, this, this really interesting like business uh, model, right? It's, it's like maybe in the future, every company could be a financial service. Every company could be a bank, right? So, so for example, imagine like, you know, for example, WhatsApp needed to make money, right? So they probably didn't have to sell to Facebook. So, so it's to, what if, what if every user can, in order to use WhatsApp, can sort of stake or, or put in $20, right? Uh, in order to activate their account. You can take that out anytime, right? But sort of that interest rate accrued through sort of decentralized finance, right? That's powered by blockchain could be, could make, you know, WhatsApp, like hundreds of millions of revenue, right? So, so, so like, I think that instead of like having to show ads to end user, having to compromise people's like privacy, right? So, so, so I think that would enable, like that would set the company on a much different course, right? Where, where they can just do what they want to do and, and not sort of participate in this like attention span economy, right? As, 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 you know, as predominant as like the current internet. So, so I think, you know, there, I don't think this is going away, like sort of attention span stuff, like, like consumerism, right? But I would say the tooling and the software that's involved in sort of like essential needs, essential like functions for, for an individual, there, there's, more, there's more motivation for that to be based on the blockchain, right? Like, like imagine like an honest airline, right? With, <laughs> with tickets and like price pricing that's really transparent for, for end users. That's going to be like really attractive for 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 consumers, right? To go to go with that airline.
Wow, an honest airline. We yeah. never see the day. <laughs> so th th this is interesting to me in more ways than one. I, I think beyond everything that that you know we saw with respect to what the metaverse could look like and what sort of a virtual experience uh, could look like, I think there are some real applications like you outlined there for decentralized apps. I'm still, I think, struggling to fully grasp how really large behemoths are going to get created in the decentralized uh, internet. I do see the potential for, you know, a hundred Facebooks, for example, or Facebook level uh, companies or Facebook like companies that each grow to like a hundred million in revenue. Mm -hmm. But I think, and maybe for the, for the better, this kind of predicates itself on on creating more value for the overall ecosystem rather than for a few key players. Uh, does that yeah. does that kind of uh, resonate, or do you have a different way of coming at that? Yeah, I, I think I think the part where um, about the ecosystem really really resonates, right? It's it's similar to like no code local, where like companies sort of integrate with each other, similar to Jamstack, where like companies integrate with each other, right? And same with Web three. Right. And, you know, that's a part that we're playing with magic, too. It's like we're, we're sort of trusting that happening with all these genius minds behind these projects. And we're providing like the pick and shovels, like the tooling that is absolutely necessary for like sort of mainstream users to get in on this. Right. And, you know, there, there's a lot of like large Web2 companies like potentially looking at like blockchain as well. Right. And I would I can only imagine like. If, if metaverse, you know, sort of manifests into something more mainstream where we participate like every day, um, it's it's inseparable from some kind of a blockchain, right? It would be it, it would be like that. So, and then for that to happen, you need user authentication, right? That's compatible with that format. So, so yeah, like we're, we're planting our, <laughs> our our seeds, making our beds in that in that future, and you know, and, and sometimes like. For, for all innovation in the beginning, it does feel like a toy, right? Like with, with Mac, you know, with the PC, it felt like, yeah, you could only play some games on it, maybe like do some spreadsheets. But then like with the birth of internet, right? That's like a paradigm shift and singularity that like powered everything, right? From, from that computer and opens a new window to that. Whereas I think for blockchain, we're sort of seeing those like fringe use cases bubbling up, right? Like I think, digital art, like collection, like digital item collection, that's not a foreign concept in gaming, right? Like on Steam, some skins are like sold for a lot, but imagine that's like actually a commodity that's not completely tied with Steam, right? That you can like bring elsewhere, that you can like actually show off in the metaverse, right? So so yeah, like I, I, think, I think, you know, that's a really strong start already, right? And, and you're probably gonna see like more brands, like sort of, jumping in on this right and, and that's going to bring more attention more sort of value into the ecosystem you know more investors that fund more companies right you know obviously with everything right um popular right it's 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 like yeah it comes in waves right but each wave actually boosts it higher right and you know i've i've seen i've seen the worst right with the 20 17 crash like after after that the mm -hmm. crazy like ico wave and ethereum was like under a hundred dollars right so so it's yeah I, i've seen it worse and now with nft you know i have like 
just so much more faith in like the sort of underlying fundamentals of, of Web3 and how much, you know, eyeballs and sort of, you know, abundance, right, is in this space to create something new and, and be innovative. Awesome. I know we started on a personal note. I would like to end on a personal note as well. Yeah. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast are fellow entrepreneurs like you, like you. Why don't you tell us an experience that you really learned a lot from that either caused you to stumble or just something in the ecosystem that um, really caused you to take some pause? And what would you advise our, our listeners take away from that and do differently in their own entrepreneurial journeys? Yeah, I think for for us it was, I mean, you know, we 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 went we went through a lot like with with every startup, and you know, there's a phase where it was extremely difficult for me to raise money, and you know, I I see myself as like you know like a really like introverted person, and I would like overanalyze and like think a lot like situations and and sort of try try to do like my like very best right like to, to like craft something together but you know sometimes that really um gets in the way i would i would say and, and i think part of it is not being like driven by fear right because like when you're in a startup you're you're sort of in a in a scarcity position yeah and it's really easy to fall in the trap of like scarcity and like be more fear driven like startup is like a creative and abundance abundant process and that's the right mindset to to approach it Right. And, you know, when, when one is fears driven, they seem to be like, they, they, they would gravitate towards being like more analytical or like overly analytical and sort of miss out on the gut feeling and, and intuition. Right. So with, with startups, like no one knows like what exactly you have to do. Yeah. And, you know, we have like billions of years of evolution in us, right. To, with, with this instinct, right, that drives us forward. And, and so I would say, yeah, like trust your gut feelings and, you know, be courageous, right? You know, nature rewards courage and uh, yeah, be, be comfortable with being emotionally vulnerable to people. You get a lot more support than you anticipate. So yeah, and yeah, and also like when you're fear-driven, it's also really easy to fall in the trap of like over-designing like processes and structure as a coping mechanism. Right, which also like slows down startups by by quite a bit. So, so yeah, like like I think I think I would say that's like one of the one of the most important uh, lessons I've learned through through this this path. What a great note to end stuff on, and it's it's kind of in a sense hard to even imagine that uh, you had things rough there from a from a fundraising standpoint. I know your team raised a really strong Series A earlier this year, so congrats to the entire team on that and and Thank just you. pulling this off. I wish you guys nothing but the best, Sean. It was amazing, amazing speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time early in your morning as well. And uh, it was it was really fun talking. I know our audience would have gotten a lot out of this. And uh, before we end, why don't you give our audience a handoff to where they can learn more about magic, learn more about you personally, and if they want to reach out or, or get connected, how do they reach you? Yeah, so you can learn more about magic at magic.link. That's, that's our domain. And for me personally, you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter. So it's underscore Sean Lee, S-E-A-N-L-I. Awesome. Sean, thank you once again. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. All right. That was the show. 
Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job. Or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again and I'll see you on the next one.